0: We love the soundtrack to The Greatest Showman at our house, and my son, Dex, loves it too. And so he's going to put Hugh Jackman to shame right now. Come here, son. Uh, Here you go, handsome man. All right, what are you going to sing? A Million Dreams. Okay, go ahead. Give it your best shot. Because every night. Me. And keeping me away. I think of what the world could be. The vision of the one I see. A million dreams, it's all it's gonna take. A million, for a million dreams for the world we're gonna make. Oh, yes! 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 Great job, Bud. Great job. Nine thirty. You're lucky. He's not doing it for eleven. So, (laughs) early birds get the worm. We didn't choose this film on a whim. From the compelling story and substories to the fantastic soundtrack, this movie thoroughly captivated me. The Greatest Showman is a film chronicling the life of P.T. Barnum and the circus that he created. Now, critics hated this film, Uh, hated it, and moviegoers loved it. Uh, A New York Times uh, movie journalist wrote an article, and she wrote, What am I missing? You guys all seem to love it. We all hated it. What am I missing? And she says, I asked, you responded. Over 1,200 responses came to the New York Times website. Here's some of the responses. It's the message, dream, live, find your tribe. Don't be afraid to blunder, rise up, fall in love, show the world who you are. How can you not understand why it's so good? Another uh, email that came in, I'm a legal aid attorney. A lot of my cases involve child abuse. It breaks my heart to see these children. A particularly horrible case came my way yesterday. During my commute, I put on the Greatest Showman soundtrack, and I felt better. I contemplated going to see the movie again. I've seen it six times. Finally, I'm a grown woman, but this movie makes you feel like you are 17 again, and that you can fly, like Zendaya. You walk out the theater on a cloud, feeling victorious. It makes you believe everything could be possible. Love, dreams, jobs, businesses, success. Maybe I should look into buying a trapeze. (laughs) When I was growing up, we went and we saw the circus. How many of you guys have ever attended the Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus, okay? Of course, we won't have the chance to see that circus anymore. It closed in 2017 after 146 years of running. I don't know if you had this experience as a kid, but moments when you're young and you're feeling down, but it, it, and you had been to the circus, there came this phrase or this thought that you could run away and join the circus. Where did that come from? So they're kids, they're in their rooms, they're having a pity party, feeling like mom and dad doesn't love me, and the thought arises: maybe I could go and join the circus. Anybody ever have that thought when you're really low? The idea is that there's at least some people out there that is always going to accept you. They would always take you, always welcome you, and somehow that you might find a family there even if the family that you were with wasn't so loving or caring for you. Today, before we're done, I'm going to invite every one of you to run away and join the circus. P.T. Barnum was born in July of 1810. Here's a photo of the actual P.T. Barnum. Later in life, he became an author, he was a politician, he served as mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut, also in the House of Representatives in Connecticut. He wrote books, and also he wrote tracts, tracts describing his faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, He was an entrepreneur. By the time he was 31 years old, he thought he could make a quick buck by getting people to come to a museum filled with curiosities. Here's a photo of that museum. He had uh, wax figures there, kind of like Madame Tussauds. I think that's how you say it. Uh, He thought maybe I could create a museum, and actually people started to come. And then he had this idea. Maybe if he had real-life human beings who were oddities, that people would pay even more to see them. And this wasn't an act of kindness on his part. He actually wanted to make a buck. Uh, And at the time, these people were called freaks of nature, people who had abnormalities, deformities. So we ended up hiring an interesting cast of performers. Here's a few of them. Charles Stratton. Uh, his name as performer was Tom Thumb or General Tom Thumb. He was just over two feet tall. There was Chang and Eng. Uh, they were Siamese twins. People were fascinated by them. And by the way, both Cheng and Eng got married. They had 21 children between them. They had two houses, and they would spend three days at one house, Four days at the other house with each of their families back and forth. That's how they lived. Their wives didn't seem too happy about it, though. If this photo has anything to say about it. (laughs) Then there was Theodore. He was the dog-faced boy. Then there was Annie Jones, the bearded woman. These were just a few of the acts that were part of the Barnum Museum. See, it was a museum long before it was a circus. And each of these persons had rare medical conditions. They weren't understood at the time, and it led to their unique appearances. Most of them were outcasts in their communities. They were often people who were humiliated or harassed, but they found a home at Barnum's Museum. Now, today, we would press pause uh, and ask questions about putting people with abnormalities on display for people to pay and see them. But the film doesn't want to raise that question. Rather, it raises the idea that for people who feel like they don't belong, they don't matter, there's a place where you belong, where you are beautiful. That's one of the most beautiful parts of the film, that for those who are shameful, odd, strange, outcast, there's a place for them to be beloved. So P.T. Barnum has this idea. He's going to gather these people, these oddities, and he's going to invite them to join. He's going to make them the stars of his show. And so he begins looking for them. And I love the scene where he goes out and starts to recruit people. And he's doing this with with wanted signs. And and I was reminded how often in history, uh, we and people on our planet exclude or make others feel unwelcome or unclean people who are different. And it's not just in Christianity or even in secular culture, though we can see that all around us. But if you, it's also in the Bible. If, if you go back to Leviticus in the Old Testament, there are a group of folks called the Levites. The Levites were the ones who were supposed to take care of and lead all the, the worship elements in the temple and the tabernacle. And yet there's this exclusionary clause in Leviticus 21. It'll be on the screens. It says this, No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand, or who is a hunchback or a dwarf, who has an eye de- anyone who has an eye defect, or who has festering or running sores or damaged testicles. Well, that's making half of us uncomfortable. Uh, no descendant of Aaron the priest who has any defect is to come near to, to present the food offerings to the Lord. Why was that? Because the, the writer of Leviticus believed that these people were unclean, unworthy to serve God in this way. They were allowed to receive pity and charity, but they were thought to be unclean, and they weren't allowed to actually serve in the temple or the tabernacle. But these were the very people that P.T. Barnum recruited. I love those signs, the wanted signs, right? And you saw them as you walked up to the theater this morning. They're all over camp. If you go to the bathroom, you're going to see these wanted posters. I love that. Imagine what it's like to feel wanted when the entire world has told you that you are unwanted and that you don't fit and that you don't belong. I love what he says to Annie Jones, the bearded woman, when he first sees her. He looks at her and he says, extraordinary, unique. I would even say beautiful. I think that was probably the first time in her life that she heard someone refer to her as beautiful. See, she was born with fully grown facial hair. Can you see where this starts to illustrate the gospel, right? This was Jesus. It didn't matter what Leviticus said. Jesus went out of his way to find the people that others said that they were unclean, or not beautiful, or misfits, or somehow, or the other, they didn't quite fit in. I love the fact that if you read the Gospels, Jesus spends most of his time looking for the people that no one else is interested in. In Luke 4, Jesus begins his public ministry, and I just want to read just a a few select passages here in chapters 4 and 5. He says this, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, he stood up to read, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 40, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Luke 5, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with le- leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately leprosy left him. This is just so scandalous. You, you don't touch someone with leprosy in the ancient world. You, you would then become unclean or you yourself might become a leper. They didn't understand what we now understand. And I love that the passage tells us that Jesus touched him. Jesus touched him. This open wounds, right? This fleshly skin. There's, you can see blood. You can see, you know, your cells and all the different, these openings, and it was oozing, And it says, Jesus touched him. I am willing, and he makes him clean. This was the sort of love that Jesus gave to outcasts. And it was so scandalous in the first century. It's not something that a normal person would do, let alone this up-and-coming Jewish rabbi. He was once asked, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why did they ask him that? Because he did that. He hung out with all the riffraff. There is a litany of freaks and weirdos that Jesus sought and healed. There was a woman who was hunched over for 18 years, a man who lived among the tombs who everyone was afraid of, and so they chained him up out in a graveyard. And he he broke the chains, and Jesus sets him free. The freaks, the cursed, the sinners, the outcasts, these were all the people that Jesus devoted his time and attention to caring for. That's our God. What did Jesus see when he saw these people? He saw more than their appearance. He saw beauty in them. He saw how their uniqueness might be used by God to accomplish great things. They were glorious. Can we see the sacred worth in all of God's image bearers? The freaks, the geeks, the weirdos. The weirdos that you know Can you see the image of God inside them? By the time we were all in seventh grade, we all knew how to exclude, tease, and to find people who look different, make them feel bad about themselves or hurt them with our words. The things I said and did in my teenage years to make myself look good to other people at the expense of someone else still haunt me. I remember I was with a friend we were to drive through, and it was his car. He had a car. Thought that was cool. So we go to McDonald's. We pull up, and we're like, "I would like a pepper with fries, big." Got it. And the guy's like, um, "Excuse me." And we're like, "I would like a lot." You know, and and I was laughing. He was laughing. And he said, "Just just pull up. And you can talk." And we get into this back and forth. And I remember saying, after he makes a comment about us, I said, well, at least I don't work at McDonald's. Still haunts me. That person is an image bearer of the divine. No matter what he did, what he, what he looked like, that's a child of God. As we get older we still do the same thing. We think that the church is for a certain group of people or the the, the club is for a certain group of people. People who don't fit in, uh, sure you can come and visit, but you don't really belong. May it not be so. My favorite song in the film is the song that you heard earlier, "A, A Million Dreams. Here's the lyrics. They can say, they can say, it all sounds crazy. They can say, they can say, I've lost my mind. I don't care, I don't care, so call me crazy. We can live in a world that we design. Every night, I lie in bed. The brightest colors fill my head. A million dreams are keeping me awake. In many ways, this is what led us to start this church. For 10 years, Sarah and I dreamed of this kind of church. And maybe that's why this song has resonated so much with me. There were countless nights where I lied awake in bed, dreaming of being a part of this kind of church, Uh, uh, the kind of church that loved everyone, that, that not loved everyone with the goal of making them believe, but loving them was the goal. A church where the love of Jesus in and through his followers transforms hearts and communities. A church where people don't judge those that don't fit their theological boxes. A church where questions are not feared, they're encouraged. A church that puts a preeminent place on caring for those uh, on the outside, the down and outs, the hurting, the poor, the suffering in our community and in our world. I've been a pastor for 17 years. And when you work for a church, really any amount of time, You experience hurt and pain in ways that certainly aren't Christ-like. Many of you have experienced Christians that haven't acted very Christian. Uh, Not long ago, I was working uh, and... I got an alert on my phone that there was a package delivered to my house, and it was something for the church. And I wasn't too far away from our home, and so um, I decided I'm going to stop by my house and pick it up. My wife, Sarah's home with our kids, and Ivy was just uh, a a newborn baby at this time. And I get the package from the front door, and I I put it in my car, and I go, you know what, I I should stop in and and say hi to the fam. So I walk up the stairs, and she's in Dex's room with both kids, holding our daughter Ivy. And for some reason, I kind of Go like this, like I I just don't. I don't know if I want to not scare her, and so I I go like this, and then Dex sees me and goes, "Daddy!" And then Sarah turns and goes, "Oh God!" And every time you scare my wife, it's the same two words, "Oh God!" Every time. There's lots of times when I try and scare her, I'll just go, "Oh God!" She'll go, "Oh God!" It's great. It's great. It wasn't great this time. I realize now that my crouching posture had good intentions, but it had the opposite effect, right? I realize now I was kind of positioned like a home invader (laughs) and she wasn't expecting me. And so I scared her. So then I I go in the room, I hug my kids, I say, well, I got to go back to work. And then I lean in to kiss my wife and she, (laughs) she's like, you scared me. (laughs) She pulled away. You see, even though my crouching tiger, hidden dragon posture was unintentional, the damage was done. Often, well-meaning Christians have done the same. Though their intentions may have been good, their actions may have spoken louder than their words. Many of you have been scared away by people in the church. And believe me, I've experienced plenty of these kinds of hurts over the years. I've seen church dysfunction, bad leadership, dictator-like leadership, hypocrites, gossip, meanness, and self-righteousness at its worst. Any negative impression you've ever had about Christians in the church, Sarah and I have experienced all of those. And I know many of you have also experienced many of these hurts by people who should know better, by people who should be better. And that's not what we're about But you cannot build a church on what you're against. You can't build a church on what we don't want to be like. You see, over the last 17 years of serving in the church, we've also seen great beauty, great love, humble and gracious people who radiate the beauty and wonder of God. Saints who have prayed, served, and gave, and loved without regard to themselves. Prodigal church will not be built on what we're against. It will be built on what we're for. I don't care, I don't care, so call me crazy. We can live in a world that we design. Do you believe that? Crazy as it seems, no matter what people may say, that we can imagine the world as it should be, as it could be, and we can actually take practical steps to make that dream a reality. That we can imagine the world as it should be. There's this scene early on in the movie where P.T. Barnum is a young boy and he's hungry and he's an orphan and he's alone. And this deformed woman gives him an apple. It's this, it's this amazing thing. And he's so shocked. He's distraught. He's worried. He's fearful. His life is on the line. And this woman who is an outcast herself gives what she has, and it becomes a pivotal moment in his life. It's this small, tiny, little 15-second part at the beginning of the film. But is that also the moment that shaped him to treat people the way he did? There, too, have been moments in my life that began the dream of the kind of church I'm called to be a part of, the kind of church I'm called to build. There's this passage of Scripture that really just speaks into this in Matthew Matthew chapter 9 says this, later when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house. By the way, Matthew was a tax collector, one of the bad guys. With his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined them. When the Pharisees, when the religious people saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit And lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher, acting cozy with crooks and riffraff? Jesus overhearing shot back. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. We have a chance to build this kind of church. God's kingdom was never about power, prestige, tickets at the door, but rather about loving each other selflessly. And it's about community. It doesn't matter who you are. There is a human longing for belonging. We all want that. We all desire that. There's an innate, innate to the human experience. We have a longing for belonging. Mother Teresa says this, loneliness is the leprosy of modern society, and no one wants anybody to know they're a leper. Henry Nouwen, renowned Catholic theologian, said this, community is not an organization. Community is a way of living. You gather around people with whom you want to proclaim the truth that we are the beloved sons and daughters of God. Community is not easy. Somebody once said, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. It's true. I want to invite Noe and the band to come up. I, uh, I wear a hat almost every day, mostly because I'm losing my hair. Um, <laughs> and my daughter loves to pull it off my head, and then she puts it on her head. And, and she leaves it on her head until I say this one thing. She puts it on her head, and I say, Very pretty, sis. And then every time I say, Go run and show mom how pretty you are. Go, go tell mom. So then she runs to mom with the hat on. She looks at her, and then mom says, Very pretty, sis. Every time. See, Sarah and I want to show our kids that there's something special, that you matter. Because God says you matter, and I want to show you that as your dad. So you are somebody. So when kids are picking on you in seventh grade, you never lose your sense of identity. You are somebody. And you know what all those people found at Barnum Circus? They found family where they belonged. These people love me. I'm glorious. And the church is for everybody. Red, yellow, black, and white. You are precious in his sight. You know what the church is? It's God's circus. Run away and join the circus. This this theater that we're in, it's not a theater, it's a big tent. And guess what? You're not in the audience, you're one of the performers, you're the acts. And I think that makes the church the greatest show on earth. And I think it makes Jesus the greatest showman. God, we pray that we become that kind of place. That the dreams you have instilled in us would become a reality. Jesus, we pray that we'd be a place for everyone. God, I pray that pray for my own family, that, that we grow up and mature to not have a, ju- a judgmental bone in our bodies. And God, we pray that us as a church would be like that, that we wouldn't have a judgmental bone in our bodies, that we love. Jesus says, you will know they are my followers by their love. Help us to love big. Help us to love grand. Help us to love the outsiders, those that don't fit in, those who are hurting, those who are suffering, those who are lonely. God, as they're longing for belonging, I pray that we would meet that need as a church, as a community of faith, centered on Jesus. So God, as we follow you, lead us to these places. Lead us to these alleys where there's needs, where there's people longing For something more. Let us be like that woman to give and sacrifice what we have for the betterment of others. As husbands, let us do that with our families and our wives. As wives, let us do that with our husbands and our kids. As sons and daughters, may we live that kind of love, show that kind of love even to our parents. Father God, let us decrease in your great love, increase in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we declare the truth of our great God? Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of sin. Jesus is calling. Have you come? To the end of a cell, to your thirst for a drink from the well, Jesus is called.